0: Makes me feel hopeful about where we're going. Uh, If you want to open up your Bibles, your pew Bibles, page eight hundred six is Colossians chapter three. We're going to be going through one verses one through eleven. If you're at home watching, you can do the same thing in your own Bible. Colossians chapter three, verses one through eleven, and we'll get to that soon. Um, But uh, let me pray before we go into that. Father, we thank you for this morning, and I pray that your Spirit would. fill these words that that these would as these words fall out of my mouth that they would land on hearts and minds in this room and at home that and and that they would be effective that they would actually uh move us to, to transformation move us to understanding of who we are in you and move us to understanding who you are to us and i you know i think about that worship right now and i just think Oh, man, I am so hopeful. I pray that our church would be sort of the epicenter of, of things like forgiveness and confession. Of newness. A church that is reflective of all peoples, Father God, where we don't deny our differences, but we, we relish them, we love them, we, 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 we lift them up because you created them all. And we pray that you would just embody this church with your virtues, your values, your, your character, your presence, and, and that that would go beyond anything that I could ever say up here or Richard and the worship team could lead us in or Rachel could lead us into the prayer ministry, Father. It, it goes down deep into the very supernatural uh, reality of your presence here in this room and in our hearts. We want more of you We don't want less of you. We want more of you. We don't want to just be satisfied with all that we have right now. We know that we have this full relationship already, but we don't understand that totally. And we don't always act in it. So I pray that you would bring that joyous conviction to our hearts where it needs to come in whatever those things are in our lives that need to be uh, turned away from. And that we would turn towards your face, Father God, and you would fill us with your presence. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you do not know, I went to art school <laughs> and uh my my wife's parents' parents were probably not too happy when she was marrying me, uh, thinking that I probably couldn't make a living and all that kind of stuff. But I drew that back there, the big drawing back there. I did the two paintings back in here in this in the prayer room, just to toot my own horn a little bit. I'm, I'm not a great artist, but, you know, I'm not too shabby. I did these two drawings. This was a guy that used to come to 6'8", and he moved away. And then this is a guy in Indonesia, Paheri, who uh, was my sort of friend for a long time, still is my friend. but um, And, uh, you know, when, and I went to uh, the Brandywine River Art Museum yesterday, and, you know, uh, Andrew Wyeth is just brilliant with, like portraiture and people and like you look at these people that he's painted or just drawn and you you feel that person you feel their 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 character their their mood things like that it's pretty cool Um, I don't tend to think that I get that far I I would like to but but I but I don't think that I do but um, but when drawing a person you have sort of three uh, choices in drawing you could just uh, sort of you know, draw from a person from memory, right? Just willy nilly, like scribble on the paper, letting your pure emotion gar- run your hand. And you would come out with something that's, you know, might be a little bit recognizable, but probably is more childlike than anything or you could strictly draw by the rules like all the the rules of drawing and which would mean probably that you would have an eyes you know two eyes and a nose and two ears and a mouth and all that stuff and you you could see this and you could see it, it, all that makes up a person but your drawing would be sort of devoid of life it wouldn't be really it wouldn't feel it wouldn't capture the spirit of that person like Andrew Wyeth you know tries to do um or you could marry the head and the heart, the mind and the heart, and uh, come up with not only a strong likeness of a person, right, but the real spirit or essence of that person, that model that is sitting right in front of you. And you're really paying attention to that person, and you're letting both your mind and your heart run. In, in, in my art classes, you know, as I was... Uh, at Tyler School of Art way back when they would always say draw what you see draw what you see draw what you, see. you got it was like ad nauseum right and i'd try to focus my you know uh brain on what i really saw before me uh, of this model sitting before me instead of what my brain told me was there right um because when you're looking at a person and you're about to draw them, your brain tells you there's two eyes and two ears and a nose and a mouth and stuff on that, on that head right in front of you. And it just wants to draw those in just by the rules, right? And uh, I had been to the anatomy lab. I had taken apart cadavers and, and I, had, I had studied bone and muscle structure and all that stuff. I had practiced perspective and proportion and all those things, all those rules that a company drawing and what my pr- professor was trying to get me to do was to use all of those rules all of that knowledge in my head uh and, and to draw those two ears and those two eyes and that mouth and and you know that nose that were right in front of me because you know if I look at Chuck he's different than when I look at Bill or when I look at Lindley you know what I mean so um it, it, it was it's 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 a it's a lot more work than you think, right? Um, and and in in the beginning, when you're working on a on a drawing, your brain fights, right? You're fighting your brain and it, it because it wants to just put an eye there, you know, in the shape of an almond, you know, with a couple little circles inside of it and scribble it in, right? Um, and be done with it, you know. That was it, but that's not what you really saw in sitting in front of you. That's really not what you saw. The brain wants to constrain everything into the lines or the rules of drawing when it actually when actual, in actuality you would have a model sitting there and their hair might fade into the black background that they 're sitting in front of um, you know things like that or, or you're, you from your angle, the eyelashes may be almost non-existent. they just faint whispers, but your brain says there's eyelashes there, so you draw them in there strongly, and then your professor comes by and inevitably says, can you really see that? I can't, so erase it and start over again. You know, and, and it was kind of a pain, but, but you need the brain and the rules. You do need all the rules. The rules are there for a reason, but the brain has to be in balance with the heart Uh, you have to feel that model. You have to feel the drawing as you do it too. There's, there is something of an emotive component to it or a, uh, you know, a connection to it. And the brain recognizes all the physical facts, but the heart interprets them in the right way, uh, on the paper as they really are. Right? So, if the brain takes over like you want it to, right, or it wants to, your drawing comes out sort of cold and dead, but recognizable. You might even know who it is, but it hasn't caught the spirit of the essence of that person. But if you can train the brain and the heart to rely on what the eyes see, uh, working together, you have the makings of a masterpiece, which I have not achieved yet as an artist. I, you know, and I, I really don't do it that much anymore anyway. But, um, but in the beginning, your drawings uh, seem to get worse as you really practice these things. You have to learn to look more at the model than at your paper. You know, when you're sitting there drawing something, if I asked you to put up easels and you were to draw the person next to you, you'd look at your paper a lot. And that's really not the the best way to go about it. You have to train your gray matter Uh, between your ears to listen to the heart and soaking in what the eyes see that is feeding them both. And all the while, you're assimilating facts and the rules and the bone and the muscle structure under the skin and the mood of the moment and uh, the feeling and the eye of your model and things like that. Contrasts of dark and light and tone and shade and all those little lines in their face that have, you know, it's like, you know, that line was from, you know, getting fired in 19, you know, whatever, I don't know, you know, but th- things like that. And as your eye travels across the contours, or across the peaks and the valleys of their, uh, or the contours of their skin, your hand starts to, actually starts to move in the right way on the paper, almost without even looking at it, you can, you can just reference it every once in a while. And uh, then your head screams, in the middle of it, your head screams, there's a mouth, put the mouth there, and you draw in this like little squashed football, right? But that's not really what you see and you have to erase and start over if you look at his mouth it's like just a line with some it comes down on the sides and then you know it's just a suggestion it's not even what your brain tells you to see right and um so you have to erase and start over It's, it's a it's a process it's a it's a hard process and art is much like the christian life i think that's why i like the parallels in it so much at at times I fall just back into the rules, right? And at other times, I, you know, my life seems to be only led by my heart, right? Uh, but bringing those two things together, focused on Christ as my model, is really where the spiritually powerful life is, I think. Listen to what Paul says, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, four we'll begin there. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, let me stop and just say, something's been done in you, for you, to you, right? You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, I feel like a broken record in this series, but maybe this is really what, what needs to happen. I don't know. But, but we need to gaze on Jesus as our model in life all the time. You know, just always with our, our, our eyes on Him and occasionally referencing ourselves, right? But how do we bring the heart and the mind together to do that is the question. You know, we tend, I think, to look down, focusing on the rules, right, of, of life, like an artist, you know, focusing more on the paper than the model sitting before them. We focus on the earthly things, the do's and don'ts of life, placing our gaze on what we think is right, and maybe actually right, some of those things are, might, might be right, but we, we come out with this stylized sort of dead version of Jesus in us, right, right? We need to train our eye to see what is really truly there in our model. We think we know what the Christian life is. We, we say, don't do this, don't do that. Uh, don't go here, don't, don't, don't go there. Uh, go to church, go to Bible study, etc., and so on and so forth. And some of those things are really good things. There are rules that aren't bad rules, but it's not, you know, just living like that alone is not creating a masterpiece, Right? And we can't disregard these rules altogether either, which some of us would love to do. Worse yet, we forget the rules that which, you know, kind of really matter. Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. In other words, since then, you know, you, something's been done in you and for you and to you. You're a new creation in Christ, uh, Scripture tells us, right? Your Christian life is born now out of your position in Christ. In the previous verses, Paul talks of being baptized in Christ, raised up to a spiritual life and to, to freedom in this, in, in this life, right? Jesus is that model sitting before us and heart and mind must meet as you gaze and stare at your model. We said last week we need to live or we need to continue to live in Christ. We said how hard that is in our current political climate and social climate and things like that. It just feels like we just want to give up sometimes or it's Everything's just being dismantled or something like that. But, but we need to continue to live in Christ. And we translated that word live as to walk about in Jesus. And everything is spiritual. All that we do is spiritual. As we walk about life, we, we do it in, the, in, in the, 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 uh, the idea of being in Christ. So as he sits before us, we must train our brains to understand who he really is. Who he truly is. Looking, studying intently, right? Allowing your eyes to follow the contours of His face, His wounded hands inside. Allowing your brain to tell you what is true of Him. How He has sacrificed for you. How He has extended grace. How He's paid the price. How He is your model, your power, your sustenance. He is your everything. Notice Paul says here, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, right? For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. These are important words, right? Set your heart and your mind on Jesus, allowing him to define who he is as you gaze on him and as he defines who he is he also reveals who i truly am meant to be in him i I get to know myself better by knowing jesus better right so we need to allow him to dictate the facts of life the direction of life our gaze as we draw out our lives in christ should always be focused on our model you know, the Gnostics, as we've been studying, would have said secret things are hidden away from regular folk. That, that, you know, we, we're, we're too dumb to get it, you know, and they, they would have actually books with this secret wisdom written in them. And, you know, if you weren't, you know, some intellectual elite or something like that, you wouldn't get it. Well, but the secret wisdom is Jesus. That is Jesus, right? And we are hidden away in Christ. We don't have to go find anything new. And then in context of who Jesus is, Paul gives us some imperatives right here. And these are things that we need to listen to in this age where morality is just being thrown out the window, right? It says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming, and it is coming, right? You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, he says. So firstly, right here, Paul gives us this list of sensual sins, sort of uh, almost internal sensual sins of ours. You know, maybe the Colossians were struggling in in these areas, and that's why he put his focus there. I don't know. But his wording is strong. It's not just avoid or don't go there, don't do that. It'd be better if you didn't, all, all that stuff. He says, put to death, kill it in yourself. Kill it. Kill it off. Don't have anything to do with it. Firstly, sexual immorality, this general term referring to any form of illicit sexual behavior, which is, you know, out, sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. That's it, right? You know, it, it just, it just, it's where we derive our word pornography from. Uh, you know things like that secondly impurity marked by a mind that is filled just with sensually suggestive thoughts which reads sex in even the most wholesome situation I I know you've probably been around people that you know (laughs) that just every time you say something they turn it into a nasty joke I mean it's just it's, it's tiring right it's just gross and that's, that's what he's talking about here. Um, then, then there's lust, which seeks to get quick fulfillment. We know this. I mean, we're, not, we're all adults. We, it always wants more, right? Love takes work. You know, love actually is committed, it deepens over time. Lust focuses only on the personal desires of, of you know, what you get or want, your, your senses. But love uses the senses to cherish another person and to nourish their soul. They're very different. Fourthly, evil, evil desires. Our physical desires are, you know, obviously God given. They are actually good. Sex is a wonderful thing. Desires like that are a wonderful thing. But they become evil when they are motivated by the sinful nature and they are executed for evil ends or selfish ends. And we all know that desires run wild, lead to deeds. So we have, it is important for us to seek purity of mind and heart in the Christian life. And finally, he says greed, which is idolatry, the sin of always wanting more, getting more. And it's not necessarily about money in this context. It it may apply to the greed of satisfying all these evil desires, the sexual immorality and things like that. The person never satisfied, you know, with what they have and is always, you know, wanting, wanting what others have. And that leads to idolatry because anytime things or people or even the own self gets put on the throne of our lives it takes the place of god and that is idolatry right so when eyes are taken off of jesus and the blessings of that relationship the truth the 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 meaty stuff of that relationship we plunge into a dark private life i want to read you the story of my a friend of mine a very good friend of mine who experienced just that he says this a little lengthy so Bear with me. He said, I'd been a believer in Christ for many years, but that didn't guarantee my heart and my mind were set on things, set on the things above where Christ is seated. I had heard many great sermons, and I had been involved in leadership in various ministries, but that was not a guarantee either. Simply put, rather than believing my life was hidden with Christ in God that Christ really was my life i looked for a, for life in a million other places i tried to find life in winning the good opinion of others intellectual prowess or achieving cool a cool and sophisticated detachment from the troubles of the world but in my search for life those efforts were nothing compared to my pursuit of pornography I ran the magazines, videos, gentlemen's clubs, and just about any other form of fleshly indulgence that I could short of becoming physically involved with a woman other than my wife. I was looking for that thrill of feeling alive, of joy, the rush which made my heart beat fast. I sought ecstasy and I was an idolater of the highest order, even though I was a Christian. These attempts always failed. Ironically, the more I indulged, the more lost and dead I became. I always felt the rush of my experiences, but it never satisfied. Instead, I kept running to one experience after another to deal with the pain left over in the aftermath of the most recent indulgence. As I cycled deeper and deeper into my addiction, God intervened and exposed my sin. Despite the deep shame of being outed, I realized God was doing me a favor and saving my life. My wife writhed in emotional pain, and she did. I was part of that conversation with them when this happened, and God didn't shield me from it. He says, uh, or from, or, or from her outright anger at the betrayal. I had presented myself to her and the rest of the world as a godly man of integrity, and that lie had been shattered. And as I saw the devastation of my deception, God reminded me once again, only in Christ can I find true life. He brought alongside of me a group of men in a Bible study who helped me see truth again, and used a a biblical counselor with an expertise in these areas to show me again that, that being made alive with Christ really meant something significant. Setting my heart and mind on Christ actually involved doing things like Listen to these three things agreeing with God about sin Some of us don't agree with God about sin. We want to change the narrative We only want to accept certain things and not other things. I, I'm interrupting my friend's story But agreeing with God about sin Renouncing my previous life in pornography and calling on his power daily in order to live rightly in the early weeks of months Weeks and months following God's intervention, life was difficult. I wasn't sure I could set my heart and mind on Christ, but God was amazing. He honored every small step of faith and healed my heart such that I could set it on Christ. Now, years later, I can say Christ really is my life. I set my heart and mind on Christ continually by turning to Him when temptation strikes, but more than that, by turning to Him at all times in order to truly live. The more I focus on the truth of who Jesus is, the more I rid myself of pornography. And that last point is very important. The more I focus on the truth of who Jesus is, the more I rid myself of pornography. Notice he doesn't try to quit pornography. He just focuses on Jesus. That's an important point. If we focus on Christ, these things are naturally put to death in us, right? Right? Paul uses the same logic in Romans 8.13. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if your eye is on earthly things down here and just living that way, you'll die. But if, you, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So focusing on the Spirit of God, you'll, you'll live. And in Galatians 5.16, he says the same, same thing. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Notice that it's not backwards. You can't You can't reverse that. that. You can't say, if you don't do these things, then you'll be living by the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, those things naturally go away. The Spirit of God just pushes it out of you. No big reason to focus on all the rules, the do's and don'ts. Just focus on Jesus. That's it. And these things naturally die off in us. Paul continues in Colossians 3, in verse 8, he says, But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge in the image of its creator. So notice, it's the knowledge of Christ which renews you. Makes you think of Romans twelve one and 2, where you're, you're being, your mind is being renewed in Christ. It's being done to you and in you, you know, by the Spirit of God. And here now, he gives this list of not sensual sins, but social sins, sins between people that, that really affect each other, right? Firstly, there's, he, he brings up anger, this continuous attitude of hatred that is bottled up within us, which by the way, we see that a great deal right now across our country um, and and it 's a shame right that it that it is that way and then we have rage which comes bursting out uncontrollably, which we 're all also seeing across our our country the malice, an attitude of ill will towards a person, hidden hatred of the heart, sort of uh, sort of taking revenge in secret and outright ways right um, slander when We destroy another person's reputation by lies or gossip or spreading rumors about them. Filthy language, which is not just saying the F word or the S word or something like that, but crude, like just crude talk, like, you know, abrasive words that are damaging to other people. It's convicting, right? (laughs) And then lying, which disrupts unity by destroying trust between people tearing down relationships and leading to conflicts within them and that's we see this you know paul paul considers these things very serious or he wouldn't have would not have taken the time to write them down for these churches You know, we can all say that we've seen the effects of these social sins, you know, out there in the world. We've lied, we've gossiped, you know, we've seen others do these things as well. And we've seen the destruction that it brings. I I imagine any one of us could say we have relationships that are broken in our past because of these kinds of things in us. One of the things that hit me hardest when I was a kid, I was around 14 years old and I had done something, I lied to my dad. And he said, I can't trust you anymore. You lied to me. It broke my heart. I was like, you know, like at 14, you don't think that of those effects, right? Of what it, what it actually means to a person. But it, it was really good that he said that to me. It, and it devastated me that I had broken trust with my own father. We've got to understand, words are strong. They are our greatest weapon against people at times. But they are also uh, the greatest tool of life as well. I remember the old... Uh, sultan back in lompong indonesia and i was sitting in his house and he had been reading the bible and he talked about the rudder that is guiding the ship And i'm like where'd you hear that from he goes from your bible thing you gave me <laughs> and, you know and how how it can you know affect the, the the direction of anything um paul i hope i don't butcher his last name paul rusesabagina i think is how you say it uh, was the hotel manager in Rwanda between the Hutu-Tutsi conflict, you know, when that whole hap- thing happened. And he, he was able to save 1,268 people inside his hotel, um, you know, during that time. They were either uh, Tutsis uh, that, you know, were being slaughtered Or they were uh, moderate Hutus that didn't want to participate in the killing. And he kept them locked up in his hotel and he he kind of kept the things at bay, people at bay. Um, It's called Ordinary Man. Really good read if you ever want to read it. But he, he says words can take or give life. And I just want to read you some of the things that he says. He says, I will never forget walking out of my house the first day of the killings. There were people in the streets who I had known for seven years. Neighbors of mine who had come over to our place for our regular Sunday cookouts. These people were wearing military uniforms that had been handed out by the militia. They were holding machetes that were, and they were trying to get inside the houses of those that they knew to be Tutsi, those who had Tutsi relatives, or those who refused to go along with the murders. And then he describes a friend of his who he had known for seven years who was a really cool, really nice guy, great with kids, but he was standing right in front of him with a bloody machete after having killed, killed his own neighbors that he had partied with, right? And then he says, what had caused this to happen? And think about our current situation in this country right now, right? Very simple words, words. The parents of these people had been told over and over again that they were uglier and stupider than the Tutsis. They were told that they would never be physically attractive or as capable of running the affairs of the country. It was a poisonous stream of rhetoric designed to reinforce the power of the elite. When the Hutus, the the oppressed, when the Hutus came to power, though, they spoke evil words of their own fanning the old resentments even further, exciting the hysterical dark places in the heart. The words put out by radio station announcers, think about that, were a major cause of the violence. They were explicit exhortations for ordinary citizens to break into the homes of their neighbors and kill them where they stood. And then he goes on and he says, words are the most effective weapons of death in a man's arsenal. But they can also be powerful tools of life. They may be the only ones. Today, I am convinced that the only thing that saved those 1,268 people in my hotel was words. Not the liquor, not the money, not the UN. Just ordinary words directed against the darkness. They are so important. I used words in many ways during the genocide to plead, intimidate, coax, cajole, and negotiate. I was slippery and evasive when I needed to be. I acted friendly towards despicable people. I put cartons of champagne into their car trunks, and I flattered them shamelessly. I said whatever I thought it would take to keep the people in my hotel from being killed. I had no cause to advance, no ideology to promote <clears throat> beyond that one simple goal. Those words were my connection to a saner world, to a life as it ought to be lived. And then he just explains how he's an ordinary man. Just a hotel manager that saved 1,268 people because of his words. Whew. Angry words. Lying. Lying. And I think there's a lot of lying going on in our country right now. Gossip. A lot of gossip going on in our country right now. They kill. And I'm really afraid. I'm a little bit afraid of our future. They kill emotionally. They kill spiritually. And they can even lead to killing physically. We've seen that in the past year. Likewise, though, <laughs> words used rightly bring life. I watched uh, this show about uh, sort of a, a serial killer and the police were just down, the, these two detectives were downtrodden and their 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 sheriff came by and hung out with them for a little while and they were like, man, you got to tell the media and everybody else to stop like divulging our details. Like everybody's just like, Taking our case away from us and he the, the sheriff says I'll, I, I gotta go home so he goes back and he says and he calls him a little later he says come back to to the, to the office and he had a press conference and he just said what needed to be said and the two guys said man you just reinvigorated us right just said the truth and came out i'm really praying for conviction in our country and 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 joy to start to rain again because it feels heavy right now i know you all feel that right so words used rightly bring life and christians live out of a new set of values a different set of values than the rest of the world it is our responsibility to do this well right it'd be easy for us to focus just on the rules right don't look at pornography don't you know don't gossip don't hate you know all that kind of stuff, although these are good to avoid. But just by focusing on the rules alone will produce cold, dead, judgmental lies. What Paul's doing is what my art professor tried to do with me. He wants me to focus my attention on my model at all times, to operate out of who I am in Jesus as a result of that Looking so intently on who Jesus is, that good things naturally become a part of me. That I actually become a loving person. I actually become a person that, you know, can't do these things. And acknowledging what Jesus has done for me, I see myself as redressed. As Paul says in this passage. And that would have been a very vivid picture to the, to the early church since they were in the habit of taking off their old dirty clothes and then putting on these white robes in order to be baptized and coming up out of the water symbolizing this, this transformed, changed life from going from spiritual death to spiritual life. I am being renewed. I am being changed and transformed. And as I gaze and study on him for who he is, his perspective, his worldview start to seep down into my soul, right? And, start to re- and I start to react more and more to life and to people as he does. This is truth, people. When someone slanders me then or hits me or hates me, I don't, I don't automatically retaliate. I don't strike back. I don't hate back. But love grows and I actually can love my enemies. Those people that hate me, I can actually love. That's a crazy thought. It's a Wonderful thought. A desire to bring life and not take it comes about in me. And when I see a beautiful woman giving herself freely sexually, you know, I, I, I'm no longer aroused, but I actually feel pity or sorry for her because I know what she's really missing in life. I'm no longer, you know, a degenerate, in my, it just, even if it's just in my thought life. When the world tells me I need this or that, I, I realize it's Jesus who brings me wholeness, right? There's, a, there's not a hole in me to fill me that he's not already filled in me. My wife's reading a book about from uh, uh, the perspective of a Christian model. <coughs> this woman, and she talks about, you know, the... the, the uh, makeup industry and all that kind of stuff and kim said yeah i've just been starting to notice more and more how we are just bombarded as women with this this stuff that you know but jesus fills that right if you don't look like the model on the page who gives a crap i'm sorry (laughs) who cares god made you beautiful That's the cosmic dance. That's the spiritual life. To look on Jesus as you draw out your life, right? Keeping our eyes focused on your model, walking about in him as we said last week, realizing everything that he's done for us. It's an eternal perspective knowing that he'll bring you into glory. Paul uses words here of present and future benefits of keeping our eyes on jesus right lastly this focus on jesus eradicates barriers between people which is really what we need right now he says here there is no greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised barbarian scythian slave or free but christ is all and is in all now that was a deeply radical sort of thought that the gospel reaches across all social and 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 economic and class barriers you got to understand how radical that was at the time the jews considered the gentile to be a dog right they as god's chosen people they tended to look down on others as less than that was never communicated by god by the way the Greek thought themselves better than everybody else. They were especially the barbarian and they were sort of like this aristocrat and they, they knew that. They were very aware of it. They were snooty. The Scythian was, was looked on as the lowest of the barbarians. Josephus called them little short of a wild beast when he wrote. He was a historian way back when. The slave was just a living tool. Not even classified as a human being with no rights. Uh, they, a master could kill, beat, brand, or maim them at will. They didn't even have the right to marry. There was absolutely no way a free person could have a relationship other than that slave being used as a tool at that time. In the presence of Jesus, when we've all gazed on him throughout history, and please don't listen to revisionist history, But as we've gazed on Christ, truly gazed on Christ, the people that have done that throughout history, the barriers have fallen away, and all peoples have become brother and sister. Martin Luther King is one of the best examples of that. Brilliant guy. Brilliant not because he had his own ideas, but brilliant because he could keep his eyes focused on what the true gospel really was. And his desire was to free the oppressed and the oppressor from the sin of oppression. God blessed that man. I know he had his faults. We all have our faults. Sorry, I'm getting off on things. Um, You see this in Acts, right? When when people were gathered from all the various nations, hearing the gospel in their own language. We didn't erase differences. They were celebrated. God shared the gospel in all their different languages. The amazing thing in the early church was that slaves could actually pastor as their masters sat under their teaching. And it started to change the system. And the gospel changed how their masters treated them. And things, slavery started to fall apart. When God's people focus on Jesus, amazing things happen. Life grows, barriers fall down. But when we take our eyes off of him, terrible things happen, even in his name. And we've seen that. The movie Crash, if you haven't seen it, is brilliant. I love that movie revealing that. All these characters have this racist or prejudiced tendency in themselves—black, white, Asian, whatever. Um, you know, it—it's it, like this us versus them attitude. I wanted to read you Rudyard Kipling's "We and We versus They." You can read that poem sometime on your own. I love that poem. It's about that kind of stuff. But in this movie, it's where simple, like, like simple words and reactions to other people that are different drives all these characters just just to destroy each other. It's a really good movie. I watched it once with a friend, <laughs> and at the end of the movie they said, well, I, I still, you know, they still have those problems, I guess, in L.A. where the movie was filmed. He goes, "But we don't have those problems in Oklahoma anymore. Problem was that I had asked them to watch the movie with me due to some negative comments about black people that they had made. They just didn't get it. It went right over their head. I had to have a longer conversation. It happens in churches, right? There's a growing communication gap and worldview between the generations right now. You know, we tend to vilify each other on stupid things because, you know, it, differences in dress or worship styles or, you know, how we say things or how we view life and, and what we prioritize and all that kind of stuff. You know, some people see a suit and they cringe. Some people see my, my tats and my dreads and they're like, hey, that guy's a whack job, right? You know, they... You know, uh, you know, we put people in boxes and we say they're a liberal, they're a fundy, you know, I don't want to talk to them. Oh my goodness, they're a Trump supporter. Assumptions, avoidance. And we push people away, put bigger barriers between each other. It's silly. But and it's dangerous. But when you gaze into the eyes of Christ, who did he die for? <laughs> right? Not just me, he died for all of that. The the suit, the the fundy, the guy with the gauges in his ears or the person with different views than you and there's nothing wrong with them any more than there's something wrong with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the World War II German pastor uh, eventually murdered for his resistance to the Nazis thought about Christian community a lot and he, he puts it this way, he said, Christian brotherhood is not an ideal we must realize. It's not far off out there in the ethereal world, Right? It is rather a reality, he says, created by God in Christ in which we must participate. It is right here, right now. This is the nuts and bolts of it. This is where we practice this stuff. And you can't avoid it. And usually, when you want to avoid it, you cut and run eventually. You get mad at the pastor or somebody else in the church. And you you take off. Stay. Stay. Work it out. Live it out. Confess your own stuff. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, the writer talks a lot about the dividing walls of hostility between people broken down in Christ. Ethnic and gender and socioeconomic walls come down. That fence of the outer court, you know, of the, of, of the temple, of the, the outer court of the Gentiles separated the inner courts of the temple, that had been taken down. It's taken down. This had become a wall of hostilities between Jew and Gentile, sort of a physical re- representation of the hearts of people, which it was never meant to be. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, all ethnic groups, all peoples, right? and the very place where people could come to those outer courts and start to hear and understand and see the community of God interacting and be, be loved and cared for and welcomed in to meet God, into the inner, inner sanctum of, of the temple. Everyone has always had access to God in the same manner, but, but even more so now Christ has just demolished all these things. We're the ones that get the cement out and start to rebrick them. I don't think we realize how much the gospel has done to break down barriers when it's actually really lived out and practiced in this world over our history. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-five forty, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters, brothers of mine, you did for me. So we've got to look at serving others and caring for others and speaking well to and about others, uh, no matter how different than they are than, than us, as actually serving Jesus. There's something redemptive about that. One of the guiding principles in missions is the idea of contextualization, which means that when you go into a people group, an ethnic group, you use their language, you bring the gospel into into their context, you use their culture to interpret interpret the, the gospel and make it clear to them. And you know, we make it familiar to them, so all the barriers of communication are taken away. And it's so if, if a person wants to reject Jesus, then they reject Jesus and not some American construct of Jesus, right? But the problem is that there's little good teaching of breaking down barriers to others out there, right? In other words, you know, if you com- communicate the gospel to a Lampungese person in South Sumatra, right... In, you know in his cultural context and in his language without telling him that he's actually that, that jesus actually calls him to love his enemy the chinese man living in his city which you might produce is a lampungese church which cares only for the lampungese and continues to hate the chinese in 50 years time They'll be ineffective in living out the Great Commission in Matthew 28 since they're only focused on themselves and their sin of racism is alive and well. It's never been confronted. The gospel must be preached in its full orb to all people, including the repentance and forgiveness needed to be free from our sinful leanings. In art, when heart and mind co-mingle, masterpieces are born. Right? Paul says our hearts and minds uh, coming together in Christ produce a masterpiece of the Christian life. Let yours meet in Christ as you gaze on your model, as you draw out your life. Amen to that? Amen. A little wound up today. Let me pray us out of this. Father, we thank you. Come, Holy Spirit, and anoint. Us with your presence as we asked before we started speaking anoint us with your special presence transform our hearts renew our minds make us confessional people people full of forgiveness uh, full of real love not love that looks the other way at things that are destroying people but love that gets down there and practices it in real Christian community and calls each other higher in our purity and in our holiness. We love you so much, and what we want is to reflect you vertically so that we can reflect you horizontally with the the relationships that you've given us. These are divine appointments that we walk in. These moments, every single moment, is a divine appointment from you. So we ask that we could do it well. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.